Bolton has women fighting for him. I don't fight for the Boltons. I'm Brienne of Tarth. I was Kingsguard to Renly Baratheon. I was there when he was murdered by a shadow with your face. You murdered him with blood magic. I did. In the name of Renly of House Baratheon, first of his name, rightful king of the Andals and the First Men, lord of the Seven Kingdoms and protector of the realm, I, Brienne of Tarth, sentence you to die. Do you have any last words? Go on, do your duty. This week on the Sound Unsay Game of Thrones podcast, we're talking about Mother's Mercy, the season five finale for Game of Thrones, written by David Benioff and D.B. Weiss and directed by David Nutter. We'll be right back after this. Back to the Sound On Site Game of Thrones podcast. This is Kate Kalsik, TV editor of SoundOnSite.org, and then joined as ever by my wonderful co-host, our editor in chief, Mr. Ricky D. Ricky, how's it going? Hello, Kate. I I refuse to believe Jon Snow is dead. Yeah, it didn't happen. <laughs> Never happened. It's a flashback or a dream sequence. It's just a thing, you know. Like they don't get to decide, right? They're just the showrunners, oh. you know. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that and a lot more <laughs> this week on the podcast. Joining us to help us break down this finale, and I'm sure we'll talk about season five as a whole as well, is Eric Adams, the TV editor of the AV Club. Eric, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kate. Thanks for having me. And uh, as we were t- discussing briefly uh, before we started recording, you also write the reviews, uh, the newbie reviews of Game of Thrones over at the AV Club. And the comment thing is like over, it's like, 2,600 comments right now. I'm just so glad I don't have to do anything, review anything that gets that kind of, like, passionate, I'm sure, and immediate response. Oh, yeah. Uh, You know, uh, this season, I took a sort of different approach to writing the reviews, where it was sort of a uh, incremental review that got pushed out throughout the evening, and uh, even after I after I posted the very first part of it, there were 800 some comments on it. So uh, I, I actually don't engage at all in those comments. I kind of rely on our commenters to police themselves, to make sure that they're not letting spoilers out into the world. But uh, it's a, it's a very popular feature for the website and people get really worked up when a whole bunch of characters die. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I would have expected nothing less than a passionate response from the fan base for this episode. And we'll talk about that. But as we always say at the start of the podcast, um, there will be no spoilers here. Uh, everything that we talk about will be stuff that has already aired on the show, up to and including this finale. We uh, <laughs> There isn't more of the show, so we can't have seen ahead. But we also won't discuss things that have happened in the books ahead of this. But basically, from what I remember, and it's, you know, like I say, each week it's been a while, there's very little left that has happened in the books that hasn't happened on the show. There's a couple things, but but not very much. I have read the books. Uh, Eric, based on the fact that you write the newbie reviews, I'm guessing you have not? I have not, no. I am, uh, as as uh, we like to say at the site, I am uh, I am one of the unsullied. <laughs> and And Ricky, remind our listeners... I haven't read the books. I know of one sequence from book one that wasn't included in season one. I think, from my understanding, season one was almost page by page, exactly like the book, minus one sequence. And I am fully aware of the Jon Snow theory, but that's about it. Okay. Well, and we will talk around that a little bit here. But let's let's start right off at the top. This this is a a theoretical bloodbath of an episode. Uh, there isn't an actual bloodbath. That is the thing that Game of Thrones likes to do. But theoretically, many, many characters could die. But none of those actually happen. Only one of those, as you say, happens on screen, and that's Marin Trant. Of the various people who could be dead, how many do you think actually are? And Eric, let's go to you first, and then toss it over to Ricky. I, you know, I... When I was reviewing it last night, I was taking it as uh, pretty much everyone who was shown being mortally wounded is dead. Uh, I try to approach the show as a uh, alive until proven dead kind of enterprise, but there were just so many characters who seemed to meet fateful endings that I, I just had to. I just had to go with, you know, that. Sansa and and Reek did not survive that fall. That John bled out in the snow. Uh, that Sa uh, that Stannis got his just desserts uh, at the blade of Brienne's sword. Uh, it it just it seemed very cut and dried to me. That, Marcella too. Yeah, yeah. Mar Marcella has been poisoned. Uh, Stannis's wife, obviously. Uh, I. I, I was unsure of the provenance of her hanging, if it was a, a, a self-hanging or possibly a lynching at the hands of the deserters. But uh, I just it, it just really seemed like a big slate cleaning event. Uh, and so I assume that everyone that we saw on screen is dead. And then an important follow up and off the show. And, uh, you know, that's the funny thing about the the interviews that everyone did after the finale, especially the Kit Harrington one, the, he seemed to be very careful about saying that he's not going to be on the show next season. Mm -hmm. So, you know, who knows if he's going to be under, uh, Melisandre's own equivalent of the, the sheet that, uh, Kyburn kept the mountain under this whole season. And maybe some sort of zombie Jon Snow comes back in season seven. Okay. Ricky, what about you? Uh, how many of the characters whose fates are left, like they cut away before we actually see them die? How many of them do you think actually are going to die, are dead? And if so, uh, how many are going to be on the show next year? Two, Jon Snow and Jamie's daughter. I, I don't think we care enough about Jamie's daughter for them to have to show it on screen. Jon Snow, I think, is dead. 
See, I don't know. I don't know what I can say or can't say because I mean, I haven't read the books and I haven't seen Future into the show clearly because it hasn't been filmed yet. But I don't think Jon Snow is technically dead. Like be, because it's just because I, I didn't understand why Melisandre went all the way back to the Night's Watch by herself. Like why would she flee to the Night's Watch? Like and because of her her magic, like her red magic, and because Ghost is nearby, and because we don't actually see see Jon Snow take his last breath of life, I don't think. I just kind of feel like there is possibility that we can see some sort of magic and he comes back to life and or he turns into a white walker because that is also possible if he is dead, but then he comes back in a in a different form. So he's not really alive in Jon Snow. He's sort of like a white walker because I just think, here's the thing, okay? I think if you look back at Hardhome and that fantastic battle and how does it end? It ends with the king of the white walkers staring Jon Snow as he sails away, and he's fascinated with Jon Snow. Why would they show that kind of shot and hold it for, like, a good two minutes with no soundtrack? Like, it was pr- almost silent if Jon Snow actually dies two episodes later. It makes no sense. Yep. There, there's got to be more to this character. And the thing is, also, it makes no sense because my spidey sense tells me that Jon Snow is supposed to be in the show till the end. And so I, I haven't read any of the interviews with the actor Kit, Kit Harrington, so I don't know precisely what his words are or were. Like, did he say he won't be back on the show ever again? Did he say he won't be back next season? Did he say Jon Snow won't be back or he won't be back? I mean, I'm not sure. Like, I didn't read these interviews. It's an important distinction. Eric, uh, do you have any light that you can shed on this? Well, it did seem like he chose his words incredibly carefully and had uh, someone from the show or someone from HBO kind of whispering in his ear about how to appropriately address the situation. And like I said, he said not on the show next season, but he did, you know, he mentioned that he had sort of his celebratory last day on set and that uh, Weiss and Benioff gave him the uh, <clears throat> the customary Tony Soprano walk, which is the the reference to the tradition on the Sopranos where you would be taken away and had a, have a nice long chat with uh, David Chase about your character being killed off. And that's how you learn that your time has come to an end. Uh, so there, you know, Kit Harrington made it seem very much like he's not coming back, but there are places within that interview where it seems like the possibility for a return still exists. I have two questions. And I guess the question is directed to you, Kate, because you read the books. Does Jon Snow die in the books? He gets stabbed a bunch. Like this, the scene. Wait, wait, you didn't answer that question. Exactly. Well, because the book died. ends. <laughs> the book oh, ends. And so he dies at the very end of the very He last gets book? stabbed a bunch in the books. And, you know, it's basically what, it, what we see. We don't, like, we don't, we we don't see him die because like in the north right if you kill somebody you have to burn them or they will their eyes will go all blue and they'll come back you know this is the yeah. thing that's been established they stab him a bunch they don't burn him so like we don't see that process we don't see they the episode cuts away 
before, just like the episode cuts away from Sansa, the episode cuts away from Stannis, the episode cuts away from John, And so that's basically, and again, it's been a while, but that's what I'm remembering from the book. It's a similar thing where he gets stabbed a bunch of times. We're like, oh, no, he's going to die. End of book. Come back for the next book in five years. Okay, so 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 at the end of book five, Jon Snow gets stabbed, and they've only released five books as of yet. The end of season five, Jon Snow gets stabbed. We still have two seasons coming. So 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 anything can happen at this point in time. Oh yeah. My second question is now, does he have the same powers as Bram? On the show that has not been established, as okay. I recall. Because again, I haven't read the books, but once in a while you you browse through an article and you can't help but notice, you know, a few words here and there, and I noticed skin changer next to Jon Snow's name. What what does what does skin changer mean? Um, I th- I would imagine that's like a reference to like warging stuff. Um, there's like there's stuff that's in the books that's not in the show where there's like an amongst the the Starks. There's you know and it ties into their their wolves and everything the, the bonds they have with their wolves that they're you know there's the warging thing is not just Bran shall we say amongst the Stark children, um, but. Again, that's not something that's come up in the show. So we don't know if the show... There's there's many of these supernatural elements that have been downplayed or excised from the show, at least thus far. And you could point to Lady Stoneheart as like the biggest example of that so far. Um, Sorry, who's, who's Lady Stoneheart? Exactly. Yeah, I, I can't. Spoilers. <laughs> so I can't tell you. But that's like a significant thing that happens in the books that has not... Like, who knows if they'll ever do it on the show. Okay, so wait, so sorry. So you see, here's here's the here's the here's the tricky thing about doing this podcast. Like, we wanted a podcast in which one of us has read the book and one of us hasn't read the book. We bring on a different guest each and every single week that could have read the book and or not. But people like our podcast because they haven't read the book. We have to be very careful as to what we say, especially you, Kate. So I don't mm-hmm. envy your position. Yeah. But here's the thing. So my spidey sense and what I've been talking about for about five seasons now, podcasting is that is that Jon Snow is sort of destined to be this great leader, but he could still be a leader of, say, the undead. I mean, I'm at the point right now where I'm watching this show, and I'm like, well, how many White Walkers are walking around? We don't know. Clearly, there's many, because What's-His-Face was sacrificing his babies, and we saw that we, we saw it back in, like, what was it, season four? When, when we saw the white, remember, remember when it baby. ended on the White Walker? Yeah, yeah. And the baby and the baby's eyes turned blue. Was I don't know if it was season four or season three. So we don't know how many White Walkers are are out there roaming around. We, we know there's millions of undead. I mean, it, it's to the point now where I think like maybe, maybe it'll end with the undead and the White Walkers actually winning the war. <laughs> That would be very game with us. I mean, at this point, everyone dies, so why not? Okay, well, and I feel like I should chime in here then with my take on, on these deaths because I think that I just have, like, the opposite uh, take as Eric here because there's, uh, for me, 0% chance that Sansa or Reek are dead. Neither one of them is dead. They're going to totally, like, oh, conveniently play Snow, we'll be fine. Uh, but that, 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 it was such a high fall. It was higher from yeah. the, the point that they, they shoved... Uh, uh, Ramsey's mistress yeah. off of, but yeah, she but landed on a co- on cobblestones. They're yeah, landing on conveniently puffy looking snow, and just because it's bad, it's bad storytelling. If that's the end of their story, not not only would it be bad storytelling, but I think it's a matter of direction and performances by the actors. Because 
the look that Reek gives her, it's like, it's confidence. It's like, trust me. You know what I mean? It's like she, she holds his hand and she takes the leap because she trusts that they will survive. And that's the feeling I got from watching it. It's not even a matter of like poor storytelling. It's just a matter of what we see on screen. So they survive clearly hundred <laughs> percent. Well, and also it's, it's a moment that feels very much played for triumph. And if they were trying to kill themselves, they would have jumped the other way, you know, as opposed to jumping off the side. So that's what at least that's, but I mean, I absolutely see where you're coming from, Eric, but that's how I read it. Um, Stannis should be dead. And it would really undermine Brienne's character development if he's not dead. But I could see them for some reason not. I, I could see them not having that happen. It would be annoying, but they could see that not having happening. Uh, not happening. Um, Marcella should be dead, but again, that's something that maybe she's gonna have to get back. Because if if she dies there, how did they not just turn that boat right back around and go back to Dorne? You know, or like. Like, the, the number of things that, you know, like, so I, again, she should be dead. The way that that scene is played, as soon as she starts having, like, a positive interaction with Jamie, is like, well, start the, the countdown clock. She's she's going to die. Um, but, again, I could see her, like, clinging on to life so that she can die in Cersei's arms or something. Um, and then uh, Jon Snow, as far as I'm concerned, from what we've seen here, just based on this, uh whether or not he's dead, he's not leaving the show. He's like, she's, Melisandre is right there. She's just like, there's no other reason for her to be at Castle Black other than so that she can be conveniently located to resuscitate in some form, John. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what I think. And, and, and the reason why I think that is because I can't, I can't, I can't necessarily quote her word for word, but in the past, she talked about her vision and how, She's, you know, she sees and believes that Stannis is sort of like meant to to rule the the Seven Kingdoms, and she mentioned Jon Snow at one point. And so I think she sees glimpses of the big picture. You know, maybe Stannis will rule for like a day. You know, we don't know, but clearly Stannis and Jon Snow are meant to do something greater than just die at the hands of, in this case, Brienne. Like, and in Jon Snow's case, like a young boy like no offense to Brienne but like it's not happening because Brienne's not that type of person like I don't think Brienne killed Stannis you know she 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 recognized Stannis and she understood that it was his face on the shadow who killed uh was it Ren Renly Renly, yeah. Renly Baratheon but when she when she meets him face to face she sees that you know and she keep in mind that she doesn't know that he sacrificed his daughter but she sees a brave warrior she sees someone who's Who's um, who's not crying or, or begging for mercy. He's brave and he has the sort of qualities that she respects. So there's no way in hell she she kills him. Oh, I think there is a way in hell, but, uh, but not not in that not in that kind of situation. Not the way that it was filmed. Okay, so so yeah. we have we're we're running the gamut here, and I think this is very interesting. Any thoughts, Eric? Eric. Uh, well, it's it's interesting to bring up what Brienne may or may not have done. To Stannis, because uh, to me, one of the major themes of this fifth season <clears throat> was uh, was the quality of mercy and whether or not you can be both a, a strong leader and a merciful leader. And part of my reading of this finale was that at least in this world as it exists now, a, a great leadership and mercy are mutually exclusive quantities that. 
you know, uh, it goes back to something that Alistair Thorne said to John earlier in the season. You have a, a good heart, Jon Snow. It's going to get us all killed. And I think what wound up happening to John in this episode is the the uh, the unfortunate comeuppance for being merciful and being compassionate that, you know, the, in this part of the world, people are not ready to follow people who feel that way, who lead that way. And that's why I think there's, e even in all of the tragedy that occurred in this finale, I think there's a, a kernel of optimism in the new regime in Marine, where, where Grey Worm and Missandei and Tyrion and Varys are going to take over in Danny's stead while she's sort of having this bizarre walkabout wherever she may be now. Yeah, I, when they're having that conversation, first of all, uh, it was great to get some comedy. So when <laughs> when they're talking with Tyrion, like I'm adequate at horseback riding. Um, it was that was great. But w when they're having that conversation, it's like, oh, dude, Tyrion, just let them go because you got the dream team going on there in Marine. Then like they're gonna come back and like they will have sorted everything in Marine in the first like week and then the rest will just be like building up money in the bank and like eventually just throwing awesome parties because you know Tyrion and Varys would throw an awesome party in in my mind that that dream team is what goes up against the the White Walkers uh, at the end of this show and sort of the the climactic battle for the, the fate of the known world is this sort of crus crusading force for for good and for compassion uh, clashing with quite literally the remnants of the old world. See, but the trouble I have with that, and I, Ricky, I'd love to get your thoughts on this as well, is that this show is very much structured around the Starks. And if the, all the Starks are dead, then that doesn't really work. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so we'd, if, if, like, if, um, if Arya was in Marine, for example, and not in Bravos, and so, like, she could intersect with some of this. And we can see her learn mercy and compassion as she's being a blind person next season, maybe. Then, then I could see that how that would tie in. But I really, I really think the the through line of the the series, uh, the books, but also really very much the show has been the Starks, and that's why I really don't think Sansa's dead. I just think she can't be. And same thing with with John. There's all of this mystery around his parentage, and it's been brought up in the books much more than in the show. So I, it's hard for me to know what the perspective is as as a not book reader on this. Like, Because I feel like he can't be gone from the show until we know officially his parentage. Um, at least for, he can't be gone, gone from the books until we know that. And that's part of why the whole Benjen thing really worked on me. I loved it. Um, but so, so like, because that through line of the Starks for me is so crucial to Game of Thrones... That's where I see like them having to intersect to be part of that final battle. What see, do you think, Ricky? You see, now you're using words that non-book readers wouldn't understand. For example, Ned's what was it, cousin? Benjamin, but that he's the he's in the previously on this week, and he plays a crucial role in John's stabbing. Benjamin. But I wouldn't have remembered that that character existed no. if it weren't for the previously on. Exactly. Well, yeah. And that's and that's why I love that they did that in the previously on. As a book reader, he's not mentioned in the books past yeah. book one, but it's just he's a character that I've always been waiting to return because he knows 
John's parentage. He's like one of the two people in the universe that yeah. we know know John's parentage. And so I just have been waiting, reading the books. He's going to come back. We don't know that he's dead. He's going to come back. And so I loved how they were screwing with me with the pre. I was, I was like literally punching the air, triumphant. Holy crap, guys. Benjen's back. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So listen, listen up. <laughs> we, we begin with the Starks. We have to end with the Starks. But Jon Snow is not a Stark. Okay, so here's the thing. So the thing about Jon Snow is we don't know who his parents are. There are theories as to who his parents are. The, the, I think these theories have been floating around since like 1991, right? Yeah, I feel so like, for, what do you guys my, think? Can we say these theories are not spoilers because they well, well, we've, aren't? We've, we've, we've discussed it on the podcast. They, they, it can't be a spoiler because it's just a theory. But, okay, before we get into it, hear me out. So here's the thing is, this is common knowledge for anyone that browses the internet and wants to look into these theories, right? That that includes the author of the books. And so a lot of people think that now because a lot of people are 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 like truly believe that Jon Snow is the son of It's Rhaegar, right? So here's the thing. So so we don't officially know that Jon Snow is the son of Lyanna Stark and Rhaegar Targaryen, right? But that's the theory. So the thing is, in the show, we are missing this one sequence that's in the book in which, from my understanding, Ned Stark has a fever dream right before he dies. And he and the dream is about when he rescues Jon Snow from the arms of his mom, who's locked up in some tower or something. I don't know exactly what happens. He he rescues his his sister. Jon Snow is not he, he only is talking to his sister. There's no explicit mention of Jon. But isn't but isn't that when he leaves with Jon Snow and comes back home with the baby? When he comes back after having gone to the thing that that happens during, he has Jon. But we, Jon is not mentioned in that dream. It's just like oh, okay. you can't ever tell anyone. There's just you know, the, but it's very vague because you know that okay, was book but, okay, one. So, so the story is that she is supposedly kidnapped. We're not sure by the Mad King who's Danny's dad, and she's locked up. He he, he heads out to save her with six men, only two come back alive. Ned Stark and this guy, whose name I already forget, who was on the previously on, what's his name again? Benjen. Okay, right. So they are the only two people who come back. And so he comes back with this bastard child, and, and Ned Stark is like a nobleman. He's a man who wouldn't do anything wrong, including cheating on his wife. But in this one specific point in time of his life, he comes back with a bastard child. So a lot of people don't believe that it's actually his child, which totally makes sense. But the thing is, because this theory has been floating around for so long, a lot of people now think that the author of the books want to actually change Jon Snow's character moving forward because he wants to, he, he basically wants to surprise everyone, not give everyone what they already guessed like over like 15 years ago, which could happen. Thoughts, Eric? <laughs> I mean, I, I try to stay out of uh, anything that is coming directly out of the text. Uh, and, but also try to stay far, far away from any sort of fan theorizing, but you know, it, it would be, it would be a bit of a disservice to the the fandom and to the sort of uh, weird hive mind that, that forms around these properties on the internet now where hundreds of people can come together and 
solve a, a mystery on on Reddit or in a discussion forum uh, way before an author is ready to reveal it. So you know if that's if if this is the truth of of John's parentage, uh, it they, they might as well just follow that thread and and acknowledge well, that it is the truth. To, to, to be fair, there's enough evidence within the books, from my understanding, to prove this theory correct. But nobody knows what's going to happen with Jon Snow moving forward because the two last books haven't been published yet. But the thing is, here's my thing, is I'm watching and reviewing this show as someone who hasn't read the books, has a viewer of the TV show. I'm reviewing the show, the television show. It's a different medium. Clearly, clearly they've made changes. So if Jon Snow is to all of a sudden come back from the dead, say, in season six, they better do a really damn good job of explaining how they're going to bring him back from the dead and or keep this character alive and or present in some way, be it as a, a dog or a dragon or a white walker or what have you. Because from watching the show, the magic, like the rules of this universe hasn't really been explained to viewers of the television show, which is why a lot of people are confused. So we, we've discussed this before on the podcast several times, you know, specifically with someone like Melisandre and her magic. Like, what can she do? What can't she not do? What is her limitations? Why can't she kill this guy with, like, a shadow demon assassin? Why doesn't she do it again to kill every single one of her enemies? She needs King's blood. There's plenty of king's blood out there because all of these kings have multiple children because they all have bastard children <laughs> so you know I'm, I'm pretty i'm sure it's not too hard to find king's blood in the seven kingdoms at this point in time especially when they all have like 30 kids well we do know that from i want to say it was season three right with, with the brotherhood without banners where we had the other red priest who was raising um uh beric dondarian back from the dead repeatedly yeah. and, and melisandre's like oh i i can't do that and she's like super jealous and it was fun um so we know that she hasn't been able to do that yet but we do know that that is possible by yeah. other red priests and, well, and she's again, a red priestess so who knows and, and again you know you don't have to be a book reader to to have a theory that Jon snow might come back to life because it's Jon snow it's not like ned stark it's not even like rob stark i mean he's been front and center of the TV show since day one, since the pilot. For for him to die, it's a big deal. And for Melisande to go back to the Night's Watch on that very same episode, which to me didn't make any sense until Jon Snow died. I'm like, why is she heading back? So that's why I, I think he's not dead. But then we have interviews, apparently, according to you guys, that the actor is saying he's not coming back next season. So unless mm -hmm. he's coming back in season seven. Well, and they could also just be screwing with us. I mean, that is the thing that showrunners like to do sometimes. Sometimes, but um, for me, in this, because it's fun to speculate. But let's try to get back to the actual episode and what what's on screen and and really diving into that. For me, the reason that I there was no suspense for that scene for me was that you know it's something that ties into what you were already saying, Ricky. We don't have another pair of eyes in at the wall. With Sam leaving, it's, I mean, I guess Ed, you know, or Davos <laughs> is there. But there's a one-on-one -on -one connection with the White Walkers with Jon. And, no, and nobody else has that. So 
the the show has spent so much time there and is really invested and just keeps telling us over and over again this is the battle that matters this is the relationship like that connection is what matters now john snow is one of two people the other being sam who's killed a white walker to to remove that connection to the larger picture at this point i mean not only it would be narratively unsatisfying, it doesn't fit with what they've shown us this season. And that for me kind of ties into, that's why the scene didn't have any suspense for me. And it also sort of ties into what I feel like has been an issue with this season. And I would like to get, uh, I guess Eric and then Ricky, your thoughts on this. But for me, so much of the season has tied into um, plot necessities rather than character necessities. Um, so, so John's transformation over the course of the season and into really a, a excelling in that leadership role and, seeing understanding the stakes of what's coming and all of that has been a really satisfying character journey for the season whereas Doran has felt like plot uh, uh a lot of like J- Tyrion his journeys to get to Danny have been were fun but they felt like plot this felt like character so to have that character journey one of the few interesting ones the season get cut short like that it was very it is it, it, it underlined for me the fact that it that I didn't think that they were going to actually do that. Did you find John's arc this season satisfying, Eric? I mean, honestly, I kind of greeted whatever happened to him, the stabbings, the death, whatever comes of this. I, I greeted it as kind of a relief because I really got bored of the wall this season. I know how important the Night's Watch will be for fighting back the armies of dead when they finally arrive and when they try to march upon Westeros. But I would, I would love it if, uh, you know, John, John has, has this, this character arc where he turns out to not be a fitting leader. And then we just don't see the wall for maybe an entire season. We instead follow Sam away as he goes to the Citadel and he starts uh, reading up on ways to defend against the White Walkers that don't involve the Night's Watch. And I guess, you know, even if uh, we don't have these strong connections to anyone that's still on the wall, it's like Ricky said, we still have Davos there. We still have Melisandre there. Um, There will be reasons to return there and more more better character-based reasons, I suppose. But I think uh, our, our time on the wall is going to be less important moving forward. But here's the thing. If Jon Snow is actually dead and doesn't come back in season six, do we actually need to return to the wall? Because, I mean, can I remind everyone that, for example, the Greyjoys, what happened to the Greyjoys? They just completely forgot about that family line except for Theon Greyjoy. And then the interesting thing is, again, from a non-book reader, but from having friends who've read the books, they all say their favorite character in, in, in the actual book, apart from Arya, is Theon Greyjoy, which blows my mind because he's my least favorite character in the TV show. But apparently that whole storyline that revolves around him and his family is incredible in the books. And in this TV show, I can't remember the last time we actually saw anyone in his family. That would be when they went, um, when when Yara went to go save him from from, uh, and he had been become Reek already, so he right. stayed. That would and be then, the last time. Right, yeah, and she just left him behind. 
Yeah. Well, because it's just a choice the the showrunners made because they only have so much time. And so this season they're like, let's do Dorn. That means we can't do the Greyjoys. Um, and of course, you know, we we, <laughs> let's we didn't do Dorn and not do anything with Dorn. <laughs> uh, yes. Let's yeah. maybe let's go there next. But the other thing that we don't get then is uh, we don't get any brand this year. So I would not be surprised if. If Jon Snow is not in next season, I yeah. would not be surprised if we don't see the wall and instead spend that time with Bran. Okay, wait. I got to say one last thing before we leave the wall. Okay, first of all, Bran, you're right. You're correct. We got to open up season six, I think, with his character because he hasn't been in, at all present in season five. And I think when we do get reintroduced to his character, it's going to somehow connect into Jon Snow and his death. I don't know how, but you know, this kid has visions and powers, et cetera, et cetera. Also, what I find interesting is if Jon Snow is dead and Sam's gone at the wall, then who do we really care about at the wall? Us as viewers, right? Like, honestly, Melisande, Davos. Like, I they, like Davos. Uh, yeah, I... we like Davos, but he's not like, you know, it's like it's like going to King's Landing and there's not one Lannister at King's Landing. Like, it wouldn't make any sense. But we have thousands of wildlings running around, right? They're not going to be happy in knowing that Jon Snow was killed by his own men, what, like what what do, what do they expect is going to happen with all of these wildlings? Like like it just doesn't make any sense. And, and again, it's all about focusing on the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is the fact that there is an army of undead ready to attack everyone that's alive. So like somehow we have to have the interest as viewers to want to return to the walls. I don't envy the writers. I'll just leave it there. Let's move to another part of the world. Shall we, shall we, Dorn? What did you guys think? We're, I, I, I really like that scene that we got with Jamie and Marcella, but it, as soon as it started happening, uh, I mean, it was just it seemed like, you, again, I was seeing a ticking clock with her lifespan go down. Uh, were you glad to get that scene, Eric? Yeah, it was, it was very sweet. Um, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of really satisfying emotional connections this season uh because like we said there was so much kind of tied up in plot and advancing these stories while we wait for larger developments to come from the source material so you know it was it was this nice kind of moment for jamie who's who's had such a satisfying turnaround from the the character that we met at the beginning of the show and you sort of get that from Cersei in this episode as well. You know, we the the interesting thing about the way that this show has has developed is the way that characters can can journey from a completely unsympathetic position and perspective to to someone who we really feel for. And uh, that's that's what I got out of that scene between Jamie and Marcella as he gets all of like 30 seconds to acknowledge the fact that he's a father before it's torn out of his hands yet again. So does that make Dorn worth it for you this season? No, not really. Uh, Dorn just seemed like such a tremendous waste and such, you know, there, there was all this potential and it's such a beautiful setting and the Martells were such a fun part of season four uh, that it just, I don't know if they started plotting out the season and they realized they didn't have as much time for it on screen as they had intended. Uh, I, you know, it, it was really funny the way that the casting announcement for the Sand Snakes was, was greeted 
with such fanfare online and then they amounted to to practically nothing uh you know we get we get that that last shot with Alaria and the sand snakes standing on that that dock uh that implies that they'll be back but it it just it it started from nowhere and and it went nowhere it was probably the most narratively unsatisfying aspect of season five how about you, Ricky? What did you think of the scene, and did it shape your take on Dorne this season? Yeah, I really did not like the scene. I, I just like the the thing about this specific scene, in which we're referring to, in which she tells Jamie that she knows that he's actually her dad. Moments like this in season five, and I only had this problem with season five of Game of Thrones. It feels like it feels like something that you would see in a show like Dynasty or Dallas or empire or something like it does like it doesn't surprise me like you can see it coming from a mile away you know what i mean whereas with john snow over at the wall and some things we're going to talk about you know up coming up next on the podcast it's it's a, it's not only not not only did it shock me and surprise me but i don't know what to make of it yet you know what i mean my 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 brain is spinning trying to figure out where are they head, headed with this specific storyline here it wasn't surprising sure it was kind of sweet to see marcella tell jamie that you know she knows that he's really her dad, et cetera, et cetera. But it lasted like what, 30 seconds? You know, if that's the payoff for Dorn, then no, it's not good enough. And it's not just about the payoff, it's about the journey. And the journey just wasn't as interesting as it was prom- promised to be. Like everyone was talking about how this was go- going to be supposedly like the most exciting part of season five. And it, it ended up being like the most disappointing. So I'm not too happy about Dorn at all. And I'm not even entirely sure what's the point in it. Like, what was the point in Jamie rescuing his daughter when technically he didn't even rescue her? So that she that he wouldn't be in King's Landing, so that the stuff of Cersei could go down. I mean, that's, exactly. that's what it seems like. Exactly, but that's that's what I mean. It's like, it's like you said, it's not about character this season. It's about moving pieces so you can move the plot forward and faster because you have to get to a specific point in time. To you know what I mean? Like, it's like it's like. It's like, okay, for example, like the season opens up with the flashback with Cersei and she visits the like witch doctor, whoever it is. And she tells her that both, you know, she tells her that all three of her children would die. I'm like looking back at that flashback. It's the first and only flashback we've had in the show. And I'm like, what was the point in the flashback? The end of the season didn't tie into that flashback. There's not one moment in the whole entire season that really tied into the flashback, except for maybe the Cersei scene, which we can talk about soon, but not even really. So it just, this whole season felt disjointed, and I have a problem with the writing in season five. This is my least favorite season, period. I think it contextualizes Cersei in an important way when she's having the struggles with Marjorie, um, but I don't think they did enough work on that. I don't think they pulled it off. I, I mean, I think, uh, I do think it helps quite a bit, but they, they, I think they needed to do more for us to to accept Cersei as more than just being kind of bitchy uh, and needing power and needing that control. They they needed to maybe call back to it more or find a different way to, to, um, to have her behave because so much of her journey, it does try to make her journey this season less about wanting power and more about trying to protect her kids so that it's, it's, it's less, um, 
narcissistic and it's less, you know, she's her father's daughter and she's just power hungry. Um, but the way that she, that everything goes down with the sparrows, especially, you know, as she's just sort of sending them out to do whatever they want, as long as she thinks she can control them. I mean, she goes beyond just let's protect Tom and let's protect, you know, and establish my position. She goes, she's getting such glee that, you know, they're clearly setting her up for the fall of these last few episodes. But if you're, if you want that to tie into this flashback that we start the season with, I don't know how successful maybe that was. I will say yeah. though, that the, the March that we get with Cersei, I thought, first of all, just the CGI of it, because uh, Lena Headey is pregnant. So they used a body double for her and stitched her face on well done. Excellent performance from the body double. The physicality was excellent. And also from Lena Headey, her performance throughout that is fantastic. Um, so just the technical side, well executed, go team. Um, but also that did make this, you know, this last sequence about character rather than plot. Cause she ends the season where she began physically, but she's in a very different, theoretically, a very different emotional and mental place. Do you think we'll see that play out next season, Eric? I mean, there's no way, like, we've we've been talking about, about payoff and uh, getting satisfying conclusions from, from all of these longer arcs. Uh, it, it would be a real betrayal of some of the finest both filmmaking and acting work that the show has ever done if that walk from the Sept to the Red Keep wasn't some sort of transformational process for Cersei. Uh, you know, I, I, that sequence was probably my favorite part of the season, which is a really weird thing to say about such a punishing, grueling, way too long scene. Uh, but it, it just did so many things correctly from the technical stuff that uh, Kate was talking about to the, the, the performance aspect to the way that it allowed us to really feel like we were in Cersei's place to walk within her non-existent shoes. Uh, you know, there was just such a great blend of, of filmmaking styles and of, of capturing the scale of the crowd that surrounded her. You know, these are these people who have always uh, despised and detested what Cersei stands for uh, just as, as a money elite who's keeping the, the people outside the keep down uh, and so it's she she comes face to face with all that and comes face to face with the vitriol that these people feel for her who have never met her before. And it's it, it's a very affecting scene. Um, I just want to quickly go back to Dorne because we kind of fast forwarded really quick. And I just wanted to quickly say that had we not had any scenes in Dorne this season, would anything change come season six, apart from maybe Marcella, so maybe dying or not? Like, would anything actually change? Even if we didn't see those scenes and Jamie came back from God knows where and his daughter was dead, would it change anything for us as TV viewers? No. And that's the problem with Dorne. It didn't really do anything for any of the characters moving forward and or the overall picture. Now, King's Landing? Holy shit. I think <laughs> I think that is the best sequence of the series yet. That that whole walk from the High Sept to the Red Keep, I think that is the best scene 
in the series yet. I think it's better than the battle at Hardhome. I think it's better than the Red Wedding. It looked like a Pierre Paolo Pasolini film. I was like, these dudes watched some Pasolini movies before shooting this sequence. It was incredible. And I had no idea that it was a body double because when it started, I was like, oh, they have a body double when they're cutting her hair. But then when she actually when she actually stands in front of everyone and she they take off her clothes, I'm like, okay, it's not a body double. It's actually her. No clue, Kate, that it was a body double. So that is amazing to know because they did an incredible job with the CGI. Holy shit. But that was such a punishing scene, like you said. Uh, and, and, and the thing about the sequence is, I mean, we never really sympathize for Cersei. And lately throughout the whole entire season, I mentioned this earlier. I think it was like way back in like episode three or four. I was like, if I kind of feel like the writers want us to sympathize with this character. But the thing is, despite the fact that she is a terrible person, person and she's done terrible things, look at her walk and like through this crowd of people and look at how the people react to her. They're just as terrible as she is, if not worse. And here she is being shamed and punished for a crime for falling in love with her twin. But they are just as bad, if not worse, than she is. And the performance from the actress was mind-blowing. Like the way she held on to her composure and she she tried to remain a strong person until she just couldn't hold it anymore and finally breaks down. That was incredible. And just the lack of a, and I believe there was no soundtrack in the background, but you just hear the nuns repeating the exact same words and you see everyone attack her and swear and cuss and they try their best to attack her and holy shit, that was mind-blowing. Like, I watched that sequence over again before recording this podcast, but I had to watch it again because it was amazing to see her stripped naked, washed, and eventually they cut down her hair, and then she has to have her atonement and walk through the streets completely naked, and then her feet are bleeding. I mean, it looked like a sequence from The Passion of Christ or something directed by Pasolini. It was mind-blowing. Kate, did you not like that sequence? Well, yeah, I thought it was really well done. I do agree that it's, I mean, it's a little long. I was kind of watching going like, okay, we get it. Um, but it's so good that it's hard to really fault them for that. And you mentioned her bloody feet. And I think that that, like the detail of that, when you, when she gets in and, and Kyber's let me bandage your feet at least. And you see, and they're just destroyed. I mean, first of all, I want to know what she was walking on that destroyed her feet so much, but I guess maybe it's that long of a walk. I can't, I'm not good at gauging distance clearly. Uh, but, but, um, but like when she's leaving the bloody footprints that along with the excellent, amazing performance. And uh, I, I also, again, I wish I knew the name of the body double because um, I think the physicality of that performance also is, you know, she's also doing excellent work, but the seeing the bloody footprints at the end and, and all that really hit it home for me. And I have trouble kind of understanding how Cersei is going. I think she needs to, it's like you said, Eric, she, this needs to change her fundamentally, but I have trouble seeing how she can change because she's always been someone who hated the crowd. And how could that experience change that? You know, well, well, hold on a second, because, okay, first of all, I think the sequence had to be long. Like we as viewers need to be punished just like her. And I think the reason why it's such a powerful scene is because it was long. If that sequence was like one or two minutes long, it wouldn't be as effective. It, in fact, it would be, I would call it terrible. Right. But there's not once, not twice, but three times as she's walking, she looks up to the sky and she sees her 
huge castle, which is where she resides. And she just wants to get to this castle as fast as she can. She wants us to be done with. And nobody wants to walk in her shoes right now. Not that she has shoes because she's walking in bloody, like, bare, she's walking barefoot full of blood. But, but she sees how these people live for the very first time. Like, that's when it actually hits her. That's when she realizes what it's like to live as a peasant, poor, looking up at this castle and realizing that there's someone like her living in this castle. I think it's going to totally change her character. I think that whole sequence is all about transformation. The whole entire season feels like it revolves around Cersei. And in fact, as much as I, I won't say hate the season, but dislike it compared to the seasons that came prior, every single scene at King's Landing, they nailed it. It's like, I can't complain about any scene at King's Landing, specifically the scenes that revolve around her character. And the thing about this season is that it kind of feels like if there is a major theme for the entire season, and there's plenty of themes that we can talk about that we have talked about on our on our podcast, but this show, Game of Thrones, destroys characters who are unwilling to compromise their beliefs, their ideology, their views on life and religion. And that is why I think with, with someone like the High Sparrow, he's doomed come season six cersei's gonna take control of king's landing guaranteed i think it's characters like the starks that don't really hold on to these beliefs and traditions and religion and whatnot that it will that will actually survive because these everyone else seems to put this first and foremost and it ends up being like a, a major roadblock so what do you think eric is did her walk teach her compassion uh I don't think it, it, it's a kind of lesson that's going to sink in immediately, but I think it's definitely going to, to change her take on the people that live outside her castle walls and also uh, the way that the insane uh, religious fanatics that she's militarized uh, are, are treating the people that they're ostensibly serving yeah, this is what's happening to the Queen Mother. What do you imagine is happening to people who don't matter? But I don't think she's going to have compassion for the people who punish her. Anyone in this show who who's hell-bent on taking revenge, for example, Brienne in this episode, what happens? Like, in, in this episode, when she decides that she wants to go after Stannis to avenge the death of Renly, she misses Sansa Stark lighting the candle. This has happened repeatedly over and over within the show. Every time someone decides to put their their selfishness first and foremost over someone else it ends up biting them in the ass right and in this case even with brianne who's a really good-hearted person one of the good people in the show because she decides to take revenge and even if she didn't kill stannis then or not she she intended on killing stannis she misses sansa's signal when she lights up the candle she's basically going to take revenge on the high sparrow and she's going to take back king's landing and i can't wait to see it because cersei is one of my favorite characters i love to hate her you know, I don't love to love this character, but I love to hate her. Like, I need a character like Cersei in the show. And, if they uh, can uh, contrive to make uh, her and Marjorie team up next season after having gone through these experiences, if they're able to, like, unite to take down the Sparrows somehow, that would be kind of amazing. If that's what it took for us to get Marjorie and Cersei such powerful uh, players who just unable to, to team up, if that can make that happen, that might make all of this worth it. That would finally give them something in common. Yeah. Um, let's talk, let's move on to the other fantastic CGI moment of the episode. And that's what we get with, with Arya. Did you guys uh, enjoy her, her attack of, um, 
of Marin Trant. And then what, how'd you feel about the scene we get with all the faces? Cause I, again, I thought the CGI, the effect of that was, was fabulous. That was very well executed. That sequence was, it was definitely my kind of jaw on the floor moment of the episode. Uh, the, the entire arc, the, the entire storyline within the house of, uh, of black and white has in, impressed me and surprised me, uh, which is, probably a, a trap that the show could fall into eventually if Jack and Hagar can be anyone within those walls uh, and can can appear to die but then actually waif and maybe he was the waif the whole time uh, that is that's a narrative pitfall but uh, looking at it from from the small picture from from this week, just to to watch the beginning of that that sequence with Marin in in the brothel and just knowing like there was there, there's a nice knowing sense of suspense at the beginning when you know that the the girl whose face is covered is going to be Arya because she is uh, one of the faceless ones and then to sort of see the consequences play out back in the the chamber of the faces uh it was it was it was a very nice little moment that uh, was dotted with surprise what do you think ricky yeah i haven't been a fan of the house of black and white all season long and that's not to say that i didn't like the the sequence in which she stabs him in the eye not once but twice and stabs him like multiple times and it was bloody and gory and brutal and i loved it because i love horror films and i love aria and i love watching her like just take apart this pedophile but Again, like with the payoff, I just the problem with the House of Black and White is the whole entire season I've just been kind of bored, and that's just me. Like some people have liked it, I just haven't liked it. I kind of feel like I'm watching sort of like the Karate Kid, which she has to do like house chores in order to like become the one that's destined to do whatever she has to do. And it just there wasn't an, enough. Like looking back at the whole entire season, there wasn't an, enough interesting scenes for me to actually be. For me, for me to actually walk away satisfied with her storyline this season, and I hated the ending. Like, I'm sorry, maybe you liked the kid. I don't know. I just really did not like it. I just, again, it, it, I, I knew that would happen. And that's the thing about the show is I like watching the show when it surprises me, not when it feels like it's, it's, it's relying on TV tropes and moving pieces forward because it needs to get somewhere as opposed to focusing on the characters. And I'm just like, at the end of the day, she kills the wrong person because she does it for personal reasons. She, you know, she can't really bring herself to throw away Arya Stark, the person that she was. So at the end of the season, she's still Arya Stark. So I'm just, I'm just totally confused as to what the whole point of the storyline is. And again, I'm not a book reader, but everyone I know who's a non-book reader has been completely disappointed because Arya Stark was my favorite character. That was last season, not this season. I, I think I would say we leave her when she's starting the journey we were hoping she would take over the course of the season. Um, because th this now going blind, that's gonna, that can't help but shape her and, and force her to, you know, have some, <laughs> maybe it wasn't worth it to be so focused on revenge that you betrayed this vow to the house and Jack and Agar and all these other things. And, yeah, maybe it should be more focused outside of your own vendettas. Um, but that that's something that, again, I don't know that we needed to spend a whole season 
to get to where we got with her. So some of the scenes earlier on, I guess I, I would have just preferred to have the same kind of scenes just in fewer episodes. So either get there sooner and then see what happens next and have a different arrival point in the finale or just not see her, like have her in fewer episodes over the course of the season and have her take the same journey and let um, some of the more repetitious elements, like like the fourth time she's saying, tell me more, tell me all your secrets. And they say no. Uh, you know, like we could have had fewer of those and had those remain off, off screen. At least that's that's where I'm at with the House of Black and White. Because I do think that they're, and again, I can't help but be shaped by the fact that I read the book. So I yeah. knew where the season would end. Um, I, I knew that she was going to go blind. Um, but and again, I'm I'm thinking of, more i think they do the book maybe does a better job or i connected with it definitely more than you did maybe though eric not as much as you did with this notion of her gaining a respect for death and an understanding of death a different perspective on it from working in the house of black and white um and that starting to shape her but it sounds like maybe you got that from the season eric but ricky you definitely didn't i mean eric is that would you say that's the case yeah i mean uh I think the the whole idea was to teach her to respect both what they do in the house and to respect this this desire that she has to bring death upon these people and she has to recognize that that is you know what they do in the house of black and white is is sort of a mercy killing and it's it allows people to have a a peaceful death and death can be a a, a gift that they can give people uh, and that, but it also it's it's a very fragile thing, and she she mistreated it. Um, it's it's funny that this happens in the same episode as as Brienne presumably killing Stannis, because neither particularly heroic. Uh, these these are moments that we've been waiting for for several seasons, and that we've been promised them, and that Arya has been reading out this this list of names and that Brienne has pledged herself to avenging the deaths of these people that she's served. And then when it happens, it's just, it doesn't have the meaning that they've, they've built up. They've built it up inside of them because they are, you know, they're ignoring a larger picture. Like when Brienne ignores the candle to go kill Stannis, or they're ignoring the significance of, what they're doing when Arya decides to go after Marin Trent rather than killing the thin man as uh, she's been instructed to do. Yeah, but I, I think that's clear, but the problem is I don't think we needed the whole entire season to build up to this one scene where she can't make the right decision. So they punish her by making her go blind because she, like, I mean, the, the girl, the girl even says, she's like, I told you, she didn't have it in her. She, she couldn't be what you wanted her to be. And like one of my friends who's a book reader, his favorite character is Arya Stark. And he himself says that he hates the, every single sequence of the House of Black and White in the TV show because he says it's so poorly written and it's very re repetitive. And he's a book reader. And that's what I see as a TV viewer. I mean, we get to the end of the season and this is what they're supposed to teach her and show her. And this is what she's supposed to learn. But I don't see them teaching or showing her this throughout the season or her actually learning anything. I just see her sort of like making a mistake in the very final episode and she gets punished for it. And now that's how she's going to learn supposedly what it is she has to learn. And to me, that's just not satisfying to spend so much time 
on Arya Stark, who a character who I love, I kind of feel like they could have condensed the storylines and or fleshed it out more and or something. Like, I just kind of feel like it wasn't fleshed out enough and or what it should have been condensed more. It, it was kind of in between. So there wasn't enough of it or there was like still too much of it, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, yeah, and we'll have to, you know, check in next season to see what they do. Like, like when she starts crying because she thinks he died, I'm like, really? Are you really that upset, Arya Stark, after all of the crazy things we've seen you do, after we've seen how how dark you you've become and how unemotionally become and how you don't show your emotions when even like the hound dies by your side or is going to die. And like all of a sudden you're crying for this guy. It just, I yeah. don't know. I just, really, I bought that. I did not like sinker. the way it was played out at all. Oh, interesting. It. Yeah. So this, this, this whole, the whole, all season long, it hasn't worked for me. And I've tried my best to like the scenes of house of black and white. Cause I do love the character, but it just hasn't worked at all for me. Hmm, interesting. Well, I hope our listeners chime in with this because it's it's because it seems like we're on a similar page for most of of the the various like of the highlights and the lowlights of of the the season and maybe the episode as well. But this one we're on very different pages, so that's interesting. Do you guys have any other final scenes you wanted to mention, or like, I, am I forgetting something? I feel like that's the we kind of touched on everything. Eric, any final thoughts on the episode or the season? Uh, this was this was a very strange season of the show. Uh, it definitely. It wasn't my favorite. Uh, I, I would rank it maybe third of all the seasons. If, if, I, if I had to run it down, I would I would say uh, season three is my favorite. Four second favorite. Fifth kind of comes in like third favorite. It's a, it's a little bit better than season one. Season two is my least favorite. Uh, and this, you know, this one kind of had the same problems as season two had where like the shape of the season didn't make itself known until really like these last three episodes and that can be a very satisfying viewing experience when you've put all this this time into watching the show and then you see it all snap into place in the last three episodes uh, but then you also just kind of have three or four episodes before that where the, it just seems like the show is kind of lost in the wilderness and you have to weigh the the benefits and the uh, the non-benefits of, of of getting three great episodes at the end of kind of seven middling episodes. So, uh, you know, it got, it got the show to the point where it needs to be. Uh, but season five was, it, it, it was a little bit of a letdown as much as the climax was really exciting. How about you, Ricky, any final thoughts on the uh, finale or the season as a whole? Thank God Varys is back because I miss mm -hmm. him. And I know Tyrion misses him. And I think we need a network of spies to find out what exactly the Sons of the Harpy are doing and who's behind their rebellion. So very glad to see Var Varys back. Want to see more of Varys and Tyrion. I'm kind of confused as to what's going on with Drogo. Is he tired? Is he sick? Is he hurt? Is he just lazy? Because he doesn't want to fly away. I'm not entirely sure who surrounds Danny at the end. Is it the the uh, Dothraki, whatever you call them? Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Dothraki are back. But do they um, recognize her? That was that was the the part that I was most interested in. Is that like is that her Kalisar? Do, do all the Dothraki know who she is, or uh, is she now a, a stranger in a strange land? Well, she 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 does drop the ring, which is a smart move because the ring would give give away who she is if they if they don't recognize her. But I'm not entirely sure. But that could be a spoiler. Well, you could you definitely. I mean. 
she's got the white blonde hair thing going and there, there's a dragon not too far from her. <laughs> uh, so that would kind of help. But um, yeah, I, I, it could very much be a, I was seeing on Twitter some delightful tweets about why would she drop the ring so Aragorn can find her. Um, so whether or not it's going to, you know, she's going to be whisked off to them and, and have to be like be in cap- captivity or rise again with the Dothraki and reclaim her Kalasar or who knows what the next season could bring. But certainly it had the feel of peril rather than victory to be there. Hmm. Yeah. You know what? I just want to see Grey Worm like take leadership of all seven kingdoms because he's a cool dude yeah yeah so that's my prediction for like season seven gray worm for president okay <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> totally absolutely missadai and gray worm they'll just like got they got it and hand a hand to the to the president not king president um Tyrion and varus i mean they got this so yeah I, i'm looking forward to more of that next season hopefully we'll get some interesting developments um in these other corners of the world and i'm very much looking forward to bran being back and and who knows maybe even rickon and wait, osha can you, what can you just repeat what you just said I'm looking forward to I like Bran. I like Since all that when? stuff. Since always. I dig all the like the vision stuff and everything. I'm okay. with you on that one. No, because right. that's that, I know that's not the most popular opinion. And you, I think you like Bran even more than I do, Ricky. Oh, but I am like, a fan of Bran. He's like, uh, he's like my third favorite character. And that's only because he doesn't get a lot of screen time. Yep. I, love, I love this character. <laughs> Well, I look forward to hearing what everybody else thinks of this finale and and like what everybody's like pools are for death, you know, like death pools of who's actually going to be dead and stay dead and everything next season. I think that should be, you know, plenty of fodder for speculation once we get to uh, next the start of next season. But but thank you, Eric, so much for coming on this extra long episode of the podcast to help us really look at this finale and break down season five. Where can our listeners find you and your work online? Uh, well, they can find my writing at avclub.com. Uh, you can also find me at Twitter, uh, Eric M. Adams. Uh, it's spelled out like Eric Maddams, uh, which is a weird thing that I have to live with. But uh, through my <laughs> middle initial uh, in my Twitter handle. So, so be it. <laughs> and Ricky, what's going on at SoundOutside right now that we should tell people about? It's mostly game coverage, Kate. So I don't know mm-hmm. if our listeners play video games, but E3 is happening right now. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting for if you're a gamer. Um we just recorded three NXPress podcasts, which is my gaming podcast. And uh, my Spidey Sense seems to travel over to the NXPress podcast because over the last five weeks, each and every single time I've made a prediction, it's come true. So uh, Use yeah. your power for good, not evil, sir. Mm, yes. It's for good, <laughs> though, if you like video games. I predict which games are coming out and which aren't. Um, so, yeah, on Twitter, sound on site. Like us on Facebook. And um, I guess you can follow us on Tumblr and of course I also host the Televerse podcast over at Sound on Sight looking at all the other shows in TV I'm also a co-host of Sound on Sight's Hannibal podcast lots of Hannibal content this week on the Televerse podcast I'll be putting out a 45 minute interview I was able to do with Brian Reitzel the composer of Hannibal it was wonderful to talk to him so if you guys are any fanables listening hit me up on Twitter at the Televerse or any other shows as well I love talking with you guys so drop us a line and uh, there's there's other exciting things ha- coming this uh, summer on TV Rectify's coming back soon um we're gonna have a couple new shows that should be interesting deutschland 83 is starting up this week we're gonna have coverage of that at the website as well as uh, a few other uh interesting and promising shows so uh plenty of content going on over at sound on site tv but thank you so much again eric for coming on uh thank you everyone for listening we'll be back next season with another with more episodes i should say of the sound on site game of thrones podcast
For the watch. For the watch. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> 